Today's reading is 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Nice to see Bella and Max and their families here. Um, uh, It's interesting that as Bella and Max go through a ceremony that welcomes them into the Christian church, we hit a passage that speaks of how strange Christians can seem to the outside world. I wonder what they'll make of that as they grow up. Um, Let's pray and ask God to speak to us through this. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that these words in this chapter are your words. So we do want to take them seriously. We want to take you seriously. And so, Father, we ask that you would uh, clarify the meaning of these words to us. And please direct our lives by them. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that makes Christians uh, very different from others in our society often is uh, the view that the Bible gives us of the future. I guess the prevailing views in the UK about uh, what happens after death would either be a kind of atheist disbelief that there is any kind of future after life. Uh, We are people who are going to die and be eaten by worms and that is it. Or I guess the alternative to that would be a sort of agnostic hope that, well, I don't really know what's after death, but you know maybe everything will work out okay in the end and we'll just go through life with that vague sense that, that maybe things will be all right. For Christians who, who trust the Bible, the future in God's hands involves a number of certainties, a number of very fixed things. Uh, and uh, uh, this passage dwells on those future certainties and says to us this morning, if you're confident of, of that future that God reveals in the Bible, then you'll live very differently now. Let me just set out a couple of things, uh, the future certainties presented to us in this passage Uh, The future holds judgment and salvation. Judgment is there in verse 5 of chapter 4. 
They will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a God, says the Bible, and one day he will judge all human beings. Now that is a belief, if you hold it, that changes you. That has huge implications for how we live. But also salvation in verse 6. For this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The gospel, or the good news, which is what gospel means, of the Bible brings us the fantastic news that judgment doesn't have to be punishment for us. That Jesus died to take the punishment that we deserve, so life can be ours after death. Eternal life. That's what it means to be judged according to men in regard to the body, but living according to God in regard to the spirit, being able to live eternally. So future judgment, and for those who know Jesus, future salvation, these are the great certainties of the future laid out by the Bible and part of what it means to be a Christian. And uh, for those who have been here, as we've gone through this letter of 1 Peter, it's all bound up with everything Peter's said so far. To be a Christian is to belong to God primarily, rather than to any institution or group in this world, or to this world as as a whole. To be a Christian is to be his people, his kingdom, his nation. Uh, And our present experience as Christians uh, is often one of being aliens and strangers in the language that has been used in this letter, waiting for our true home. Uh, Way back in chapter 1, Peter described an incredible hope that awaits Christians. Uh, Verse uh, 3 of chapter 1, if you want to flick back just a couple of pages and see that. Peter says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in this last time. In many ways, Christians are people who live Not for today, but for that future. And so lives of Christians may look very different to the world's eyes. Now back in our uh, passage in chapter 4, Peter sums all of that up in uh, this striking sentence in the middle, verse 7. The end of all things is near. That's the, the sentence we heard at the start of the service. In other words, those truths of uh, the future, judgment and salvation, they are near. Now, I don't know what you imagine when you hear that. The end of all things is near. Uh, You might start imagining the wild-eyed evangelist with the sandwich board, the end of everything is nigh, and predicting that it will be in 2012. It's going to happen very, very soon. And dates have often been rather confidently put forward as the date when all things would come to an end. I don't know if you remember last year, there was uh, Harold Camping in California uh, who predicted Judgment Day on May the 21st, 2011. Well, it didn't happen, quite clearly. Here we are. Uh, And some good news. He now admits, I discovered this week, uh, that he was wrong to even try to predict a date. He now admits that his critics were right to point him to parts of the Bible where Jesus himself, in Matthew 24, says no one is going to know. No one's going to know the date or the time. It could be in 
five minutes time, five years, five centuries, five millennia, five million years time. We just don't know. No one knows except God when the future of judgment and salvation will come. But it will happen, assures the Bible. Now, if that is the case, and we don't know a date or a time, and we can't know a date or a time, what does it mean for Peter to say, this is near, the end of all things is near? Now, let me try and illustrate it. Think about traffic wardens. You may not want to think about traffic wardens. Um, but when you're driving in London and you're trying to find somewhere to park, traffic wardens, they are the ones who determine where you can decide or, or not to park. They are the ones who can come and deliver judgment on where you have parked. They can give you punishment for where you've parked, or, if you've done it right, salvation, in a sense, for where you've parked. They can meet that out. And so when you're looking for a parking space, it is the parking wardens who determine your choice. But when you're parking your car, you don't think to yourself, I happen to know that in precisely seven minutes' time, uh, on the, the, the rotor of the parking wardens, because I've got a bizarrely nerdy knowledge of the Westminster parking wardens rotor, one will come around the corner and see my car in seven minutes. That is not how it works. You, you don't know when they're coming, but they are coming. You think to yourself, the traffic wardens, well, they're near. I can't see them now, but they're near. I know they're near. They're just around the corner, and they're ready. They're ready for me. They, 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 somehow they know that I'm here. And because I don't know when they're going to come, I'm going to be deeply affected by my decisions about where to park the car. Knowing the future, in that sense, will make you live very differently today. And Peter says, you know what, if you do that, you will be thinking like Jesus. Because that is exactly the kind of decision that he made. Verse 1 kicks us off that way at the beginning of our chapter. Peter says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Think like Jesus, says Peter, because Jesus lived now and suffered now for a glorious future. Now, he's referring back there to what he uh, spelled out at the end of chapter 3. In verse 18, we've seen that Christ died. Why? Well, verse 18 of chapter 3 spells that out. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ looked to the future and saw that his death would accomplish salvation for many. And he considered it worth the horrific suffering that he was going to go through on the cross. He looked to his own future and saw that it would be glorious. So verse 22 at the end of chapter 3 Jesus now has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Jesus lived now for a glorious future. If we live now for a glorious future, we're thinking like Jesus. We're sharing his attitude. And by the way, as we get into this this morning, please remember this is not about earning our future salvation. Only Jesus died that unique, once-for-all death. The righteous one dying for the unrighteous one so that he could bring us to God. The, The death of Jesus on the cross is what wins salvation for those who trust in him. 
following him and having the same attitude as him doesn't get us there. It is a response to what he's done for us. But the cross of Christ is also a model for us in this way. It's an example of how to live. It's not just for our comfort. It's also something for us to copy. So let's dive in. In this uh, chapter, Peter gives us two ways that the future will change us. He says, be done with sin and be driven by love. Those two things. Be done with sin and be driven by love. These are ways that Christians might seem very different, strange to the world outside. There's a negative and a positive. Negatively, be done with sin. Positively, be driven by love. So first, be done with sin. This is verses 1 to 6. Since Christ suffered in his body, says verse 1, arm yourselves with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. If we think like Christ and live now for a glorious future, we'll be done with sin, says Peter. We'll be finished with sin. Think what it meant for Christ to go to the cross. He had to resist every impulse that told him every second to pull back from the suffering, to turn away, to seek his own comfort, to relieve his own pain, just just for now, just for the short term. If Jesus had, had thought short term, then that's what he would have done. But by choosing to suffer, Jesus showed that he was done with sin. He'd made a decision to turn from sin, and he was following through right to the end. Now that is his example to us here. We're called to take a similarly decisive stand, to think like him, to say to ourselves, I'm done with sin. I'm going to determine, verse 2, not to live the rest of my earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. This is the language of a clean break, a clear-headed and decisive choice. From now on, I live for God, not for my evil desires. And that means, verse 3, living very differently sometimes from the world around. Verse 3 gives us some very strong language. You have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, which is a great pile-up of rather Victorian-sounding words. Uh, But we shouldn't think that uh, these are unusual or particularly shocking kinds of behavior in our society. Peter simply says, this is what pagans or people who uh, are not Christians uh, choose to do uh, at times. And if you're not expecting a judgment and not looking forward to a salvation, uh, you may well inhabit this verse in some way. And live this way, at least to some extent. Uh, This, in a sense, is normal society, just operating without the influence of uh, the Christian message. And uh, it's no surprise that as the UK becomes an increasingly post-Christian society, in many people's words, that a lot of these things are re-emerging into our society in full force. Uh, The more normal verse 3 becomes, the more strange Christians are going to look. Verse 4, they, the people doing the things in verse 3, think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. Another great Victorian-sounding phrase. The flood of dissipation. What, what, what is that? Well, maybe picture it this way. Think of uh, a beach 
with some great waves coming in and people surfing. And the flood is that flood of the tide coming in on the beach, all going in one direction. And there are people surfing, all going in one direction, because they have to, of course. Surfers, you go with the waves. They're all going in one direction. There's that flood. And the surfers, of course, are having a fantastic time doing it. Why else do you surf, I presume? Uh, why else do you do, I presume, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, and carousing? You don't do those things out of a sense of duty. Uh, you don't do them reluctantly. Uh, you do them because it feels good. Because in the short term, it makes sense to go with what you want to do, what you feel like doing in that moment of time. Now, there might be a deeper awareness uh, indulging in some of these things that, uh, that they are wrong. There might be a, a kind of escapism mentality driven by a sense of despair. There might be a kind of hedonism about it, driven by a deep sense of entitlement and, and selfishness. But whatever, if, if I, if we do those things, then we're following our own desires rather than resisting them uh, for the sake of the future. We're just going with the flow, going with that flood. And Christians, well, if the... If, if the pagans are all surfing in one direction and enjoying it, the Christians are the really weird ones who are trying to swim the other way, who are desperately trying to go away from the tide. Maybe they've grabbed a pole and shoved it in the sand, and as the waves crash over their heads, they're trying not to go in that direction. Well, that would be a weird thing to do, wouldn't it? I don't recommend it. Um, but it would look strange to go against what everyone seems to be doing. And the fact that it looks strange means that uh, the response to Christians can often be very strong. So verse 4, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Uh, just this week, one of our musicians here at Christchurch Mayfair was telling a non-Christian colleague about how when she um, visits her boyfriend, she never stays the night. And one of her friends, uh, a fellow musician, was flabbergasted by that. What you you never stay. So you've been there for an evening and it gets late. What well, you, you leave. You get on the tube. You go home. In the dark. That's weird. You're weird. Why do you do that? Another Christian does it. You're all weird. Christians are weird. Why would you do those things? Uh, same reactions in many places. In my first job after university, we had a, a manager who... Uh, kind of ingratiated himself with the rest of the staff by buying on a Thursday night round after round after round after round of drinks and just, without asking, sort of forcing it into everybody's hands. Uh, in one sense, how generous. Uh, but also, how tricky. After the first couple of drinks, um, I would have to start saying, no thanks, uh, and had to physically resist and turn away the, the glass that he was trying to put in my hand. And uh, can you imagine the looks, the comments, you weirdo, why would you not just take it? He's spending a lot of money on that. And he's the boss. If you come in the worst for wear in the morning, it's his own fault, isn't it? Stop being such a Christian. That same year, I was uh, engaged to uh, Tree, who's now my wife, 
but we weren't yet married, and uh, we were seeking to try and do the will of God by not sleeping together. And uh, the guys in the office who uh, would talk about their own sexual exploits uh, found out about our decision, because it was the kind of question they would ask, and um, uh, just could not make sense of it. It was so strange in their eyes that anyone in this day and age would decide to not sleep together until getting married. Uh, And one day one of them came up to me after work, having had a few of the boss's drinks, and said, "Um, I've got it, I've figured you out, I've worked out what is your problem. You're gay. You must be. It's the only possible explanation. Now, isn't it extraordinary that the only possible feasible explanation in his mindset for somebody not sleeping with their girlfriend um, was that well, they must not have desires to sleep with their girlfriend. They must have desires for something else. That's extraordinary. Uh, the, the kind of things that, that can make Christians look very odd. Most of us hate looking odd, don't we? In whatever circumstance it is. Most of us hate having to stand out from the crowd and face the jibes. And it can feel overwhelming at times. If, if you're someone who's the only Christian in your office or your family or your year group at school or your cohort at university and you're trying to live differently for God in some of these ways, the sheer force of the opinion and the numbers can weigh us down. Uh, the pressure to conform with the mass of people make us wonder, are we just being idiots? Why don't I just stay the night? Everyone else does. Why don't I just tell the, the, the old white lie and just accept all the drinks that come my way? Everyone else does. Isn't it a bit weird not to? Why do I have to be so different? It can really hit the road internally at times like that. What is my decision? What is your decision? If, if you're here this morning and you'd call yourself a Christian, have you made a decision, the same one as Christ? to live for that glorious future and not for today? Are you done with sin in your mind? Then stick with it. Because the future hasn't changed. It is still just as certain. When you're uh, tempted in those ways, when you uh, are seen as strange by people around you, if abuse is heaped on you, uh, perhaps much worse than the kind of abuse that I've described... If you lose friendships or have uh, uh, a lost degree of closeness with family members or even damaged job prospects because of these things, because of your different life, remind yourself of the future. There is a judgment day. There is salvation. There is a glorious future if you're trusting Christ. So don't waver on your decision. Be done with sin. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect in this life. Uh, No one but Christ uh, is sinless. But it means we'll keep trying to make that decision to be done with sin. Keep trying to swim the other way. Keep suffering if that's what it takes, as Christ did. If you do that, then you're thinking like Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're uh, looking into Christian things, wondering what it's all about, uh, investigating whether it could be true or relevant for you, um, you might be interested in something I read recently about Peter Hitchens. Um, Peter Hitchens is the brother of Christopher Hitchens, who uh, died recently, the, the, the famous atheist writer and speaker. Now, initially, Peter's life 
was very much like Christopher's. Uh, they, they grew up with uh, Christianity around them in some senses, a, a rather stuffy and old-fashioned, medievally expressed 17th century language version of Christianity. Um, but it wasn't so much those things that put them off. Uh, Peter writes about almost being rather attracted to the ancientness of the things that were uh, aspects of his church experience. But what put him off was the lifestyle demands of Christianity. What he saw as an outdated and repressive kind of ethical regime, uh, a sort of otherworldly moral set of standards that was undesirable in this world and hypocritical. He thought it was strange and ugly and, and he hated it. And uh, like his brother, he turned away from Christianity. He, he writes about a moment when he was at school, when he took his Bible onto the field and set fire to it. I'm talking about decisions, that is a decision. Wow. And maybe you can sympathize with him. I don't know. Maybe you look at the kind of things that you see Christians advocating or, 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 or trying to say to society and you hate it as much as he did. And maybe some, to some extent you do look in uh, this morning from the outside and, and, and don't feel as if you like what you see. And it's the lifestyle that puts you off, the moral demands that seem strange and unreasonable. Well, you might be interested to know, if you don't already, that Peter Hitchens, decades later, uh, came back to Christ. Extraordinarily. He was on holiday in France with his girlfriend. They were traveling through Burgundy. They uh, went to an ancient building where there was a a 15th century painting called The Last Judgment. It was graphic, and it was rather terrifying. And initially, uh, Peter just reacted on on atheist autopilot. He just sort of thought, what a ridiculous thing, another religious painting. And he sort of scoffed disdainfully. But that image stuck with him. And the reality of the possibility of a final judgment sort of ate away at him a little bit. And it caused him to listen to some of the doubts that he had in his mind about his atheism. And he worked through some of these things. He uh, came back to thinking through what the Bible actually does say. And eventually, with what he describes as much embarrassment and humility, Peter Hitchens came back to Christ. Now, he's... Quite a robust character, like his brother was. But all the same, the flack that he received for that has been incredible. Uh, The ridicule from the atheist community that is uh, spouted in the press against him is enormous. Uh, For for some time, his relationship with his brother, Christopher, was was strained beyond breaking point. And part of it was uh, Peter's Christianity. People have written and continue to write very nasty things about him but he seems to be able to live with that. He seems to be able to carry on being thought strange because I guess he's living for a glorious future. I guess that's the confidence that he has. He knows the reality of judgment and salvation as far as I can tell. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that great? Uh, He's certainly someone to engage with whatever our, our present views Um, For Christians, he's an encouraging model for us to be done with sin uh, because of our glorious future. So that's the negative of all this. Be done with sin because of that glorious future. Here's the positive in 7 to 11. Be driven by love. So verse 7. The end of all things near 
is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, verse 8, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. If we have a clear sight of the future, here's how it will positively affect us. As Matt said earlier in the service, the things that will last are relationship with God and relationships with people. We'll prioritize our relationships with God and with each other. The relationship with God is there in verse 7. Be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. If you know that there's a God who will judge and that you can have a relationship with him now, then praying makes perfect sense as a way to spend time in this world. Uh, If there's no future with him, then it's a ridiculous thing to do. If there's no judgment, no salvation, praying is a complete and utter waste of time. Why would you do it? Uh, I've got a brother-in-law who's a staunch atheist at the moment, and he feels very, very strongly about this. Uh, he, uh, if you uh, get him talking, he'll speak of Christians as um, a drain on society because they spend their time doing ridiculously wasteful things like praying. They could be doing business. They could be enjoying themselves in leisure. They could be growing their knowledge in scientific and artistic kind of ways. Instead, they're just wasting their time on fairy tales. And so you talk to my brother-in-law, he'll talk about a thousand wasted years in Europe where people were distracted from progress and just building cathedrals so they could pray in them and hiding in monasteries so they can go and be quiet. Well, we might want to question some of that. Actually, in the uh, the feudal uh, uh, sort of um, disintegration of society that was going on in the medieval period, actually it was the, the cathedral schools, the monasteries, that were the centers of knowledge and progress, and they were the places that actually kept the the documents from... Uh, pre-Roman times and so on and so on. So there's lots of things that we, we might want to say to historically overturn that. But even if Christians do give time to uh, prioritizing their relationship with God that looks strange in the, world, in the eyes of the world, in the light of eternity, that makes sense. It is something that will last. A relationship with God lasts forever. And we'll begin if we understand eternity, to echo Peter's prayer at the end of verse 11. He says, uh, the very last sentence in this paragraph, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. You begin to want God's purposes and his glory to come about rather than mine, my own pleasure for this moment, if you understand eternity. So knowing the future makes us prioritize our relationship with God And it makes us prioritize our relationships with each other. And that is what Peter concentrates on for the rest of these verses. Verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Love one another deeply. A life lived for others, in love for others, is a consequence of understanding eternity. And uh, three things that he picks out here, two very briefly and one a little bit more at length. He speaks of forgiveness in verse 8, love covers over a multitude of sins. A society falls apart without forgiveness, doesn't it? Uh, If people are um, uh, sinning against one another, doing things that rub one another up the wrong way, and we look across the world and we know that's going on all the time, and on international level as well as interpersonal levels, society can't hold together without forgiveness, 
This is not a thing that is bad for society now, just because it's done in the light of eternity. It's a brilliant thing. So love uh, in a way that brings forgiveness. Love in a way that brings hospitality. Verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I don't know if that comes as a surprise that Peter would pick that out. Why? Hospitality. Uh, Well, in London we need to hear that, don't we? London society splinters into individuals here, individuals there, who know each other at work, but go back to separate lives, separate houses. That is how London tends to operate. And this is very, very countercultural. Peter's saying, offer hospitality, and without grumbling. I know how hard that can be. (laughs) When we've had people over for dinner, uh, when we've had people stay for any length of time, I wouldn't dare uh, name names or give examples, but it's very, very easy to just be slightly wound up by all the things they do a little bit differently from you, the way they treat your house a little bit differently from the way you would want them to treat it. Well, Peter says, offer hospitality without grumbling. That is the way of love. Don't think of your tiny little ways as more important than eternity. Again, this is good for society. This is not a a thing that that means living for eternity will be destructive here and now. It's great. It is uh, cohesive for us. Uh, And thirdly, at a little bit more length, Peter speaks of using gifts to serve one another. Verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. This is radical thinking. If you have a gift, says Peter, it's not for you. If you've got a talent, it's not for you. It is for others. It's to be used for serving others. That is uh, very uh, countercultural again, isn't it? Uh, we speak of somebody gifted and we, we imagine, well, that's, that's for them. That's so that they can uh, make their way in the world, so they can fulfill their potential. If somebody's wonderfully gifted at music, isn't that great for them? So they can see how far they can go in, in career uh, and so on. But amongst Christians, says Peter, gifts are for serving. They're not for me. Uh, if I can preach, it's not for me. It's for you. It's for serving. If Phil can play the guitar, in here it's not for him. It's for you, so that you can be served. Uh, maybe imagine uh, the picnic later on. Uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure what the weather's doing at the moment. Um, but uh, if we were to have a picnic, if we were to go to one of the parks and um, take food there, imagine we set it up this way. We, uh, we gave one person the bread, we gave somebody the milk, we gave someone the coffee, we gave someone else the butter. And just each person had one thing to take with them out to the park. And they thought that their gift was just for them. And so everybody arrived at the park, and the person with the bread thought, well, I've got the bread, this is for me, great, brilliant, I'm not going to be hungry. Sits there eating the bread until they get very dry and can't eat anymore. I think, well, maybe I'm meant to feed the ducks or something, I don't know. And so they wander off. Uh, The person with the coffee thinks, great, coffee's just for me. One cup, two cups, three cups, until ridiculously wired, maybe arrested for some sort of public disorder. Uh, The cups, the person with the cups 
invents a game for themselves. I don't know, it's a bit ridiculous, but they get the idea. It just doesn't work. It all falls apart. Each person just using their gift for themselves in a sort of silly, selfish way. Peter says, your gifts are not for you. Now, of course, if we serve with our gifts, we will be benefited by that. Uh, It will be great for us as we grow in ability to to exercise our gift, as we grow in in our ability to serve. Uh, You'll also, I guess, be encouraged uh, by seeing God working through you and uh, maybe feeling more more assured of his work in your life and, and your relationship with him. But it's not primarily for that. Gifts in church amongst Christians are for serving one another. Uh, Living lives for the future means using whatever gifts you have to serve others because because in the light of eternity, people last. And so you want to love and care for people. So uh, Peter says, don't serve half-heartedly. In verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God might be praised. In other words, take serving seriously. It's not saying that when I speak or when someone else speaks up here, my words are God's words. The only words of God that we've heard today are the words we read from the Bible itself. Um, But it means I should take it seriously. Anyone speaking here on behalf of God should take it seriously. So if you serve in whatever way, then it's a wonderful thing and a big responsibility. If you're asked to serve in some way, then... Well, how do you react? Hopefully by being thrilled and humbled. It's a a joy and a privilege to serve in whatever capacity it might be. Are you on a rotor or have you been asked to be on a rotor? Do you find yourself sometimes not feeling like doing it for some reason? I've got to get there early and do the coffee. I've got to fold leaflets. Maybe it makes you feel as if it's a little bit of a step down from the kind of responsibilities you have during the week. Uh, A little bit less responsibility, a few... Uh, lower qualifications required for those things. A little bit less visibility, maybe. A little bit less glamour in the eyes of the world. You're serving others. You're not doing it for yourself. You're putting love above self-interest if you're doing those things. So maybe it's a good time to think in the light of this passage. If you're part of the, the church here at Christchurch Mayfair, how could you serve with the gifts that you've got? Are there things that you could do that would be of great help that maybe we haven't even thought of that you could volunteer to do? Or maybe next time there's an appeal for people to serve in various ways. Uh, maybe you could think, well, yeah, my, my colleagues would think it's pretty silly me spending time doing that. But in the light of eternity, that would be a great thing for me to do. Not for self-interest, but because I... I love others. And it can be costly. It can be uh, sacrificial choices that might look bizarre and strange to our colleagues. Uh, they might bring this, the same kind of torrents of uh, strange comments or even abuse as the resisting sins in the, the first half of the passage did. Why give up your Sundays? Why give up midweek? Why spend your time with all these people? Why pray? It makes no sense if all you see is this life. If it's just this little tiny bit of time in this life, it's a a stupid, ridiculous lifestyle. But with the end in sight, it makes perfect sense. We've got to be clear on that.
If you are clear on eternity, then live for it by uh, loving, by forgiving, being hospitable and using your gifts to serve. Let me close by um, telling you about a girl called Tonika. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, I was reading about uh, people who've gone uh, to all parts of the world to do student ministry in various places. Uh, Tonika was an experienced student worker. She was a Portuguese speaker who'd uh, worked in Brazil. Uh, she'd spent a bit of time in the UK. And then um, she was invited to go to Portugal to set up a student ministry there amongst uh, uh, Christians in universities. And uh, she would have been perfect. She was a Portuguese speaker. She had the experience. It would have been great. But she said no. And the reason was uh, she'd suffered from skin cancer. And the doctors had said to her, don't move somewhere hot. <laughs> don't go somewhere where there's going to be a lot of sun because you're susceptible. It could be very dangerous for you. So clearly the UK was a good place to be. Um, so she said no at that point. But then a few years later, the person who'd asked her discovered that she'd gone to Angola in Africa, uh, hotter than Portugal, still Portuguese speaking, still a good fit. And uh, and she was asked, why did you go? I I thought you weren't going to go somewhere hot. And she said, "I, I think the Lord was calling me to go, and so I couldn't resist. Now, the Bible doesn't insist that we go and do things that might be dangerous for our our health in that way, but she was free to because of her understanding of eternity. As Matt said, living for the future means thinking, what will last? Relationship with God will last, and a relationship with people will last. And Tonika, she, she knew that her health wouldn't last, not forever, Maybe she could hold back the skin cancer for a, a, a good few decades. Maybe that wouldn't be what would take her in the end. But she knew that her health, whatever happened in terms of skin cancer, wouldn't last forever. But her relationships with God and with people would. Have we done the same calculation as Tonika? Do you know, are you clear that your money won't last forever, that your property won't last forever, that your health won't last forever. Because if you're clear on that, then maybe you'll know that uh, God and people do last forever. Jesus knew that. Do we know that? Let's think like Jesus and live now for a glorious future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that death is not the end. That this life can make much more sense in the light of an eternity that we can spend with you, that you have won for us on the cross as Jesus died. We pray, Father, that you would help us this morning to, to see that these eternal future things are real. Pray that that would make a lasting difference in our lives. Pray that it would transform our church here. That we, would, we as a church would be those who resist uh, the sins that are so enticing if we only think short term. That we as a church would serve and love one another. And we do pray, Father, that you would uh, help us if we don't yet know you, if we don't yet understand your message, to see what it means, to see what a difference it would make. In Jesus' name, amen.